Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast. I am David Chen here today with Devendra Hardwar. Devendra, how's it going today, man? It's it's going okay. At least I'm not on a precarious bridge right now. <laughs> Indeed, I'm on uh, solid ground, and I'm grateful for that. So say we all. Well, uh, we thought we'd do something a little bit different uh, for this holiday weekend's uh, episode of the Filmcast. Uh, we're going to re-air a conversation that we had about nine years ago, uh, episode 270 of the Filmcast, which was a review of Sorcerer with filmmaker Vincenzo Natali. So what we're going to do is, Devinger and I will just talk very briefly up front. We're going to play the review, which is... Uh, our conversation with Vincenzo Natali. Uh, and then we are going to talk afterwards, reflect back on the review, talk about like what we thought about it, maybe uh, talk about our approach, how that might have changed and so on and so forth. Devinder Hardor, 2014. Pretty decent year for movies, right? I don't know if Good you year. recall. Uh, during this episode, we're not going to play the like early part of the episode. We're just going to play the Sorcerer part. Um, but we were talking about, hey, uh, some stuff that's coming down the pike is... Um, the uh, Justice League movie, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. Zack Snyder's Justice League was not a thing that had happened yet. Of course, yeah, vaguely uh, excited we, about we that. We didn't know, the, you know, the the sad circumstances under which that would unfold. Uh, and I also think uh, the Star For Wars was going to happen. The Force Awakens yes. had not yet been released, right? And so that, that was a couple years later. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it was. Uh, this was in 2014, uh, but Force Awakens would not come out until 2015. And so, uh, you know, at that mo moment in time, we still thought, hey, the uh, Revenge of the Sith, that's going to be the last Star Wars we ever see. Um, other big 2014 movies that came out at the time, there was uh, Fury, the David Ayer war film, P uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, mm -hmm. Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, and David Fincher's Gone Girl, all movies nice. that came yeah, out in yeah, 2014, yeah. right? So just so you know, like, and by the way, that's like a pretty wide variety of movies, right? Like, uh, Fault in Our Stars, you know, also mm -hmm. came out that Draft Day, the Kevin Costner movie, uh, Most Wanted Men with Philip Seymour Hoffman. So there's like, it's like a a, a bunch of uh, it, it was a it was a better time, you know what I'm saying in in uh, in our industry. I yeah, think the, the had... superhero takeover was like beginning because right. MCU was in full swing, but it did it, you know didn't get to the levels it did post Endgame and around Avengers and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't even say it was beginning. Maybe it was probably mm -hmm. midway through. It was in its yeah, middle. Yeah, you're, you're like four right? years. You're at least yeah. over five years into it. Yeah. Yeah, because Iron Man came out in 20, 2008. So, like, mm -hmm. this is six years post Iron Man. So, it's like, yeah, kind of in the, the, the Marvel can do no wrong. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 came out that year. So, yes. it's like. It was really when things were starting to pick up steam. I feel, I feel like yeah. it did take a couple. Like we didn't, we didn't know the full extent, right? The the reveal after Iron Man was like, oh, maybe, maybe they're gonna expand this universe a bit. Maybe we'll get a couple more characters, and then wouldn't that be fun? Mm -hmm. And yeah, then, yeah. Uh, then, well, it Guardians kept going was so out there. Yes. You know, Guardians yeah. Volume One was like, wow, can they really make this work? I remember people feeling like this thing with characters that no one has heard of or mm -hmm. cares about is this really going to be a success of course if it was one of the if not the most financially successful film that year um but yeah it so, felt so fresh back yeah, then indeed yeah. indeed so anyway uh all that said uh th then this uh like re-release of sorcerer hits the shelves we we're able to buy a sorcerer blu-ray which i still have to this day i rewatched it this week mm -hmm. uh and it is still an incredible film and I definitely think you should watch the movie before you listen to this, but you can still, we actually still have a spoiler section in this. So, you you know, you don't need to actually uh, watch the film in order to enjoy this conversation. You can just do, you know, treat it like one of our normal reviews. Um, 
also, I remember listening to this episode of Ingra, and I think I I warned people mm-hmm. about giving away spoilers for Armageddon uh, during this. You, you, you did. You did. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I was still hardcore on the spoiler avoidance even still nine years Still within 20 years of Armageddon's release, you know, so <laughs> you got to be safe. Wow. That is a depressing thought, what you just said just now. So anyway, okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play the Sorcerer Conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Devinger and I will be back afterwards, and we'll just kind of react to what also, we just Also, I do so. want to say apologies in advance for the microphone quality, because uh, that was, I mean, we were using decent mics, but certainly I didn't have a good dynamic mic like I do now, which it gets low range much better than what I had back then. I mean, let's well, well, let's talk about that yeah. after the fact. So let's, yeah. listen, let's listen to the conversation. Here is our review of Sorcerer with Vincenzo Natale. We'll talk about everything about this conversation, including the audio quality after this. So we hope you enjoy. Our review of William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Check out the movie. Listen to the conversation. Here it is. In 1971, William Friedkin directed The French Connection. It received five Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In 1974, he directed The Exorcist. It made history. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. That was from some sorcerer-related materials. Could be marketing materials, could be the trailer. Not sure what we're going to be able to get for this one. (laughs) Um, And it's the uh, William uh, Friedkin film that was directed uh, in the year 1977. Uh, It came out uh, the same year as Star Wars, uh, well, this only, is, it was like a month after Star Wars, right? Right. Soon after, so it was, was very soon after. I mean, Freakin had just imagine having just made The Exorcist and The French Connection. It's on right? top of the world. Yeah. He's on top of the world. He has so much studio power behind him. He's made two films that you know are, are today still widely regarded as some of the best films ever made. He he really has like you know all this clout, and he decides to risk it all on this hugely ambitious film. That then gets completely steamrolled by something he didn't even see coming, a young upstart named George Lucas directing a film called Star Wars, um, which itself was actually quite ambitious as well. Mm -hmm. And that became a cultural phenomenon uh, and that ushered in, some people think, a new era of blockbuster filmmaking. So – a lot of a lot of you know we were just talking about Star Wars and how it's still the the not only are the impact of uh, or the effects of Star Wars still felt today the actual Star Wars movies are still being released <laughs> today like there will be a new Star Wars sequel in the near future yeah uh, meanwhile there's probably nobody writing sorcerer fan fiction right probably. unfortunately unfortunately <laughs> although sorcerer itself was uh, based on a novel which itself mm-hmm. uh, spawned a uh, film called The Wages of Fear if I'm not mistaken yes. right. So a lot of people actually thought that Sorcerer was just a remake of Wages of Fear. So this movie just came out on DVD, Blu-ray, and the motivation for us reviewing it this week is twofold. Number one, yeah, very good timing that it just came out on Blu-ray this week. In in what I would say actually is an amazingly, like, it looks spectacular, this movie, on Mm Blu-ray, right? Devendra, I mean, uh, from my eyes, like, I think it just, the, the restoration is impeccable. 
Um, yeah. it, so, by the way, it is a damn shame too. Like what happened to the release of this? Because I think they were dueling studios or something involved, and right. like it wasn't all finalized until a couple of years ago that he could actually get this back out. Exactly. So not only was the movie like squashed in theaters, but you couldn't even get it right after. Theaters, right. Like the the, the home video journey was also really troubled yeah. as well. So so it's out now. But the second reason is the last time Vincenzo Natale was on this podcast, I think you told us that this was an extraordinary film that we should totally check out, right? Do you recall that? Uh, yeah. No, it's, a, <laughs> it's such a wonderful movie. And it's funny, um, it's come up in my life a number of times for varying reasons. And uh, I think, and actually, as I was thinking about this podcast today, I had sort of forgotten. I actually had a, my own sort of version I wanted to do at one time that I pitched a number of years ago. Like a remake of Sorcerer, or what, what do you mean? Not a remake. It was sort of, but it, I mean, of course, Sorcerer is, I guess, based on yes. the book. But I think I actually think it was primarily based on Wages of Fear, which is this classic Henri Clouseau movie. And um, and in fact, I think part of the reason it was derided in its time was because people thought, well, it, it was very um, uh, reminiscent pre- and and pretentious of and pre- uh, presumptuous is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, of William Friedkin to try to remake Clouseau because he was so highly, it would be like remaking Hitchcock. He's so highly regarded. And that film was so highly regarded. But um, at any rate, yeah, I, I wanted to do um, Wages of Fear or Sorcerer on Ice. I had this idea that I, <laughs> because I read about, you know, those trucks that yeah. drive along ice roads. This is, I, since then they've done a TV series and stuff. And I just decided it was, you know, not worth it. But, but I thought, whoa, you know, that's such a fantastic that alone is amazing, but imagine if one of those things was full of nitroglycerin. So, so it, and, and in fact, I also, I sort of forgotten that when I was doing my first film, Cube, um, I looked at Sorcerer as a reference point because it's very much a story of survival and this group of people who don't know each other who have to come together to get through this horrendous nightmare uh, quest or journey. And, um, uh, and I, and then even thinking back further, I remember when it, because I'm old enough, I hate to say it, I actually remember when it came out and being intrigued by it, not seeing it, I was just a kid. Um, but I remember there was, the posters had this image of a truck on this, you know, rickety um, bridge. And uh, it always stuck with me for whatever reason. And maybe the name, I probably thought it had, you know, sword and sorcery in it. Uh, <laughs> that's probably right, part so- of the reason I paid attention to it at that time. But but it always stuck with me. So it's sort of been in my brain for a long time. And I, I even, um, a number of years ago was on a jury in a, at a film festival in France and the head of the jury was William Friedkin. So I got to talk to him about it. So it's, and I got him to sign my DVD of it. Too. <laughs> nice, nice. So it's, it's been with me, um, through the years. Excellent. Well then I'm sure, uh, you'll have a good perspective to share on it. Um, so Sorcerer is out on Blu-ray, and in the Blu-ray pack, there is an uh, a excerpt from William Friedkin's memoir called The Friedkin Connection. Uh, I'll be reading portions of it throughout this review, um, but uh, one thing I, I do want to say before we begin, uh, I know the movie came out in 1977, but pursuant to our very strict spoiler policy, we will <laughs> not be spoiling the film until the end of the review. I will, however, be giving away the premise of the film. Uh, because hard to talk about the film without talking about the premise. So if you don't know anything about the movie, you may just want to just check it out, buy it on Blu-ray. This is as good of a blind buy as I think you can get. Uh, the movie, in my opinion, is extraordinary. Spoiler alert for our review. But anyway, wanted to read this segment from the uh, memoir here. 
quote, what was it about this film that so alienated critics and turned off audiences? A combination of things, surely. Star Wars, which was pure fantasy with clearly defined heroes and villains, had changed audiences' tastes. Sorcerer was presented as hard-edged reality. The four leads were fugitives from justice. The title was probably misleading, and the copy line from the director of The Exorcist didn't help. The end, uh, and, and he goes into stuff about the ending, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, but he, he, you know, brings up what I would say are, are very logical reasons why he thinks the movie didn't do well. Yeah. And Sorcerer, the title, is... Uh, like, reading his memoir, the title makes sense. But if you don't know his reasoning behind it, it is very confusing. I mean, Sorcerer is one of the names of the trucks in the movie. But it just... <laughs> this is like the Terriers situation. Yeah, it's like, like Terriers, right. The t- have you heard of the TV show Terriers, uh, Vincenzo Natale? No. Oh, there's a TV show called Terriers, which aired on FX for one season and was then canceled. Uh, it was amazing. It was yeah. a great. It was a great TV show, but the the, sh- the title Terriers uh, was really confusing because it had nothing to do with what the show was about, which is these private eyes. Going there wasn't out. even a terrier in the show. Yeah, there wasn't even a do- like a terrior. <laughs> was there a dachshund the or something? Well, there, there was yeah, a there dog. Was, there was, was a like dog. A yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't believe it's a terrier, right? Um, no. If I could just interject, I think <laughs> you you know you hit on something though. Aside from the title, but. The other reason Sorcerer is so important, not only to me, but just I think as a film in, in the history of American cinema, or maybe world cinema, is that it, it marks this very clear delineation between yep. what would be considered commercial cinema and what would be considered blockbuster cinema. That moment when Star Wars came out was such a you know, psychic shift for like the whole culture. Right. And, it was the uh, beginning of the end. And, it, and Sorcerer represented everything that preceded it. And in fact, you know, I read the Friedkin autobiography as well. And, and the thing that's truly cruel about the whole thing is that when he finished the movie, and it was, I'm sure we'll go into this in greater detail later on, uh, it was an incredibly arduous production. I mean, almost on par with like Apocalypse Now. Uh, when he, and, and he had to go to war with the studios. Like, it was really difficult. When he finished it, everyone loved it. Like the studio loved the movie and thought they had a huge commercial hit on their hands. Because that was the tenor of the times. So like that's you know movies like The French Connection, The Exorcist, these very dark, you know, hard biting films um, were massive hits. And uh, and then why wouldn't the next William Friedkin be, film mm-hmm. be a hit, especially if it's a really good one? And it completely bombed. And I think that's has that historical significance. Yeah, I, we are going to get shortly to talking about the actual movie itself. <laughs> but uh, one thing that struck me about the uh, the memoir, when he describes the reception to the movie, he was saying that the New York Times panned the movie when it came out. And he basically said that was a death sentence. And wow, we have come a long way from that as well, right? I mean, with mixed results, right? A lot of people think that the state of the film criticism and uh, the state of the slash film cast has declined dramatically uh, in, the last, in the last few years. But at the same time, we now live in a world where a single opinion from a single person can't totally tank a film, which has some benefits as well, right? I mean, I think it's always a mixed bag when you go from one era to the next. Uh, so it is kind of an inflection point, this movie uh, coming out and kind of what it represented and how it was received. A uh, lot of changes, seismic changes have happened since this movie came out. So... Uh, let me just read the plot summary real quick from uh, IMDb. A group of outcasts from different backgrounds and nationalities are forced by misfortune to work in an oil drilling operation in South America. When a fire breaks out of controls, uh, out of control, four of the outcasts are given the opportunity uh, to earn enough money to get out by transporting six crates of unstable dynamite through miles of jungle in two ancient trucks. So that's the premise of the film. 
Divin your hardware. You had never seen Sorcerer before this week, correct? Yeah, I hadn't seen it. And I'm really sad, too, because uh, they were showing it. Uh, there was a, pl- a print floating around last year, and they were showing it here in Brooklyn. And I'm I'm so sad I didn't get to see this movie first on the big screen because, yeah, uh, yeah this this film floored me. It's it's phenomenal. It's everything, um, you know, everything I've heard about it. I can definitely understand why it's held up to such a high standard. And, uh, you know, I have to say, like, freaking even though he's not, you know, doing the same level of stuff he used to do, I still really enjoyed Killer Joe. That movie is just crazy and unflinching as well. Uh, but this one. And he, he is- claimed credit for starting mm-hmm. the Maconnaissance recently in an interview with, uh, <laughs> with an interview for, with Vanity Fair. Like, that was one of Matthew McConaughey's first great roles in recent memory. It was. Uh, well, it was. Although the Maconnaissance is a whole. We, we need to do like a whole episode on that because that's a whole <laughs> bigger thing. But, you know, this movie, yeah, this movie is insane. Um, you know, I, I didn't actually even read his excerpt um, uh, in the in the Blu-ray pamphlet uh, before, you know, before I actually finished it. But while watching this film, you could just clearly see like this movie is so pre-Star Wars. This movie is like from the 70s era when they were making, you know, gritty, dark films about anti-heroes and uh, they weren't afraid of being long and forcing the audience to really go the extra mile. Um, you could just really feel that. And honestly, I can't even imagine what this film would look like if it were made today. Right. You know, Sorcerer like- has four prologues. Four! <laughs> and it takes a while for you to even know what the hell is going on or why you're being introduced to these people. Um, and then slowly it takes shape. And once it does, and once you get to this, you know, the actual meat of the story, which is them trying to transport this crazy, unstable uh, dynamite. It's such a simple concept, too, but the way it's handled, the way it's edited, um, just, yeah, it's incredible. Purely filmic and also really interesting, too, because you can clearly see that people are in danger during (laughs) this film. People's lives were jeopardized during the making of the film. Which is not as evident, I guess, in Star Wars or in other blockbusters. So it just it feels like a movie from another era, even though it is. Yeah, yeah, it's the same age as Star Wars. Right. Um, Well, uh Vincenzo Natale, why don't you tell us why this movie, what elements of this movie speak to you so much? Well, I just think it's, you know, first of all, I think it it has stood the test of time and will continue to because it's like, you know, a Jack London story or something like that. It's a classic work of, um, uh, a classic tale of survival. And, you know, men, and it's a very masculine film, by the way. Even more masculine than the original one. If you see the Henri Clouseau one, there's actually a love story going on. <laughs> there ain't no love story in this one. This is like hardcore, you know, guys on a mission type movie. Um, and, and, you know, in, in, in the most classic uh, sense and tradition of that type of story. And, uh, and so, uh, and, and yet, I mean, even in, from that period, it's, it's a particularly dark tale and it, Pushes, you feel the characters being pushed to the very limit of endurance. I mean, the very—I won't give any spoilers, <laughs> but they, I'm always tempted to do that. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but the end, the image, the last image in the film is so chilling and horrific. Uh, it's um, it's you know bound to shock any audience, even a contemporary audience. I don't think you're most. thinking of the last image, but I, I think you're thinking of one of the last images. I would argue. I'm well, maybe. Sure. Well, I think you know. I was first. I can't now. I can't talk about it. But there's. Yeah. Let me put it this way. There, there. Yes, I'm not speaking of the very last image, right. but the end of the, the end. Yeah. Right. That yeah. is dark. Right. Like yeah, the yeah, ep- yeah. Basically, the epilogue is. 
yeah. it doesn't get darker yeah. than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah this yeah. movie gives you no quarter for like uh, I don't know uh, the stuff you would want as an audience today, right? It's just no. it, it feels so bleak, completely it's so bleak and so tough, and it feels so yeah. real. And those prologues, by the way, um, I mean, it is astonishing that it has yeah. four prologues, but they're they unto themselves are gripping, like they're little yeah. suspense films, each one of them. Uh, right, so it's, the, but it's, you're like 20 to 25 minutes into the movie before you get out of the prologues. Yeah. And then from yeah. then, it takes a while before all the elements coalesce to get to the plot summary we just discussed. Um, so it is very daring. And I, I was thinking, Devendra, like you, what would this look like today? You'd probably just start in South America, right? Uh, I then, think you'd start with the Roy Scheider prologue, and then you get the other guys either in flashback or something. Right, like everyone in some huge exposition dump or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Like they'd have a they'd be playing cards in South America, and they'd be describing like how they got there or something like that. Is what I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they showed it, and not only did they show it, but each of the prologues looked spectacular. They went around the world to film these some of these quite breathtaking sequences. Um, and that was just the beginning of the movie. <laughs> like, there's but they also they don't even hold your hand because you're just right, you they, see new people. You, yeah, they, they, it's not like treatment. here's who this is. Here, you know, there's no voiceover. There's nothing. Just dropped you right into the middle of the situation. And expect you to figure things out. Um, so my thoughts on this movie is that it is it's extraordinary. I mean, the set pieces in this movie are incredible and. We, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like some of the stuff that you see in this yeah. film. There's, yeah. It feels like there's not that much CGI, right? Does not, like, if there is CG uh, or if there is digital effects, it doesn't feel like it. Um, and in fact, like a lot... Like, I, I can't tell if you're being a little facetious here, Dave. You no, mean I'm special effects or CG in general? We CG, say CG specifically, like the okay. use of digital, right? Like, I mean, it was, you know, it was obviously used in Star Wars, but... Um, well, yeah. yeah, barely, I guess. Right, right. That, but it's just the, like there's nothing... Um, like mm -hmm. for for instance, the uh, scene with the truck driving over the bridge, which is like on the poster, yeah. the most iconic scene. Like they actually built a hydraulic system that would allow that to happen, right? For a million dollars, a million uh, and, they, and yeah. they did it. They did it twice. They actually. did it twice. <laughs> they did it twice. There's, there's um, a funny it, story about that. Reading yeah. that, reading that uh, section in the memoir was was heartbreaking. Um, you know, but I think it's sorry to interrupt, but I think that's says so much about where we are right now. And I don't think we're in a bad place right now with movies, but it's a very different place. You would never, I'm sorry, there's no way that anyone would do that. No production would <laughs> permit that. And, and what I'm talking about for people who don't know is, um, and I only know this because I read the, the Friedkin autobiography, is this scene, which is kind of the, the centerpiece for the whole film, when these trucks have to, full of nitroglycerin, have to drive over this um, bridge, this rickety bridge over a raging river in a storm. Uh, they shot originally in the Dominican Republic and they constructed this bridge. It was all, you know, incredible uh, physical effect, hydraulic bridge that would swing and so on. And the river dried up. <laughs> so <laughs> there was no water and they couldn't shoot it. There was absolutely nothing they could do. So they actually had to relocate the whole production to Mexico and build the same thing, which is a very expensive thing to build, as you could imagine, over a river in Mexico, and that river dried up. <laughs> and so they then had to, what they managed to do was dam another river and reroute the water. Right. So just think about the actual engineering and the cost and the time and the manpower to do something like that. <laughs> even, if the most, even if James Cameron were making that film now, 
and said, I have to do this for real. I refuse to use CG effects. I think the studio would then, at that point, they would have put their foot down and said, you know what? It's going to be a CG river. Really? So, you think yeah. you think James Cameron w- wouldn't well, that it, on that kind of budget level? Like, I think. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe not James. Okay, maybe not not James Cameron. (laughs) He's the only one. Yeah, there's maybe like five directors I could. But I don't even then. I don't think so at that budget level. Remember that the cost of making films now has skyrocketed to such a degree that, Mm -hmm. and the most expensive part of making any film invariably is the shooting of it. Um, Except maybe a movie like Avatar, where everything's done in post. But, but essentially. A studio putting that much on the line and for them to, quote unquote, indulge a director to do something purely physical because the director thinks that's what it has to be when visual effects have reached a point where, quote unquote, they're invisible. Um, I don't I just don't I think it would be really, really hard to put that through the system. So so in watching a movie like Sorcerer now, you can be assured that that could never be done again. It just couldn't because because they had no choice. They yeah. they did it that way because they had absolutely no choice. But it's, also they put the, the the actors in direct danger, which is another you know not only building the bridge is crazy, but you know this they apparently like yeah they could have fallen off into the river and potentially the truck could have fallen <laughs> on them too. Like that that's just insane to me. Yeah, uh, appara- according to this days. the memoir which I have in front of me, the scene runs twelve minutes. It's roughly ten percent of the final film. Uh, but it took months to complete and cost more than $3 million, most of it not budgeted. Uh, the only thing that could save me was a hit picture, and I had no doubt it would be. Um, <laughs> so $3 million, I actually put it in the calculator, the inflation calculator, uh, and that is around like $12 million in, 19, in 2014 money. Uh, but as you point out, Vincenzo, right, like certain other costs probably would have sent that like way higher, right? I think in the studio, yeah, with those actors and everything, yeah. I don't think you can just put it in the uh, inflation, right. inflation calculator. <laughs> calculator. I think it's we're living in a different world, so I think it would it's possible to be much more than that. There is this there is this uh, sort of passage in the book where he talks about um, making the uh, that scene and and how the the river dried up, and he says this was becoming a cursed project. Quote with costs escalating and so many of the crew lost to illness and burnout. The sensible thing was to come up with a simpler sequence. That was the advice of all the executives. Um, when I saw the finished bridge, I believed that I could, if I could film the scene as I conceived it, it would be one of the greatest in film history. My obsession was out of control. And if I hadn't been so successful over the past few years, I would have been ordered to stop. The two studios bet on me against their better judgment because they thought I still had the mojo. Maybe I was so in tune with the audience's tastes that costs wouldn't matter. No one in his right mind would have continued on this course, but no one was in his right mind. End quote. <laughs> and just extraordinary. And the thing is, he's right. It is, in fact, one of the greatest sequences in film history, right? I mean, can, mm-hmm. can we agree that this scene is extraordinary? It looks amazing. It looks like it's actually happening, what's on screen. And it's one of the most remarkable set pieces I've ever seen in my life. The people and it's look tense like, as all hell. Yeah. Too. It's so like, tense. It's actually well shot. And right. it, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's one, yeah. It's one of the great suspense films of all time. I mean, I think you, it, you know, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just, I was going to ask you, Vincenzo, have you ever been in a situation where the studio was telling you, Hey man, we can't do this scene in splice where this creature <laughs> does this freaking thing. 
And you, you insisted, like, no, I, I have to do it this way because I, I believe that this is going to make for the best film possible. Well, I've never worked for a studio, so I don't know. <laughs> That's right. It's always been an indie thing. It's but, always uh, been the, the yeah, the producers and the funders, right? Yeah, and I have very friendly – I work – you know, my producing partner is one of my closest friends. So it never comes in that way where somebody sits you down and waves a finger at you. <laughs> it's more like the, – the, the unfortunate thing is I have to wave the finger at myself because with a studio, everybody knows that at the end of the day, if they have to, they can bail you out. With an indie film – when you finance it, it's you just get a certain amount of money and that's it. And there is simply no way to refinance an indie film. Right. Or it's an un, un, you know, almost unprecedented thing to do. So you kind of end up in a situation where you are the studio <laughs> and you have to you have to make the you know the the best compromises you can. I just think movie making is kind of the art of compromise, make, making smart compromises. Um, so it's hard to be William Friedkin. <laughs> Aside from my lack of talent, it's, it's, it's hard to be uh, William Friedkin in those kinds of situations. What were you going to say in response to uh, that passage? Oh, I was just going to say that I think what's so interesting to hear you guys speak, because you're uh, younger than I am, is that I think that the, the shadow of Wages of Fear, the original Henri Clouseau film, loomed so large, in mm-hmm. nine, for the, especially for the critics at that time, that nothing William Free could, could do would impress anybody because it was like Henri Clouseau really, he was the only director in the world that Alfred Hitchcock was envious of. He did also made a film called Diabolique, which was kind of like the film that topped Hitchcock and Hitchcock's answer to it was psycho. So, so it's, it's just, I think it's kind of wonderful in a way that you, you guys haven't even seen wages of fear. So it, um, and in a, in a way you shouldn't because um, to appreciate <laughs> Sorcerer – because the, actually Sorcerer is a very worthy remake and, and in many ways a very different feeling film. I mean Wages of Fear is a, a masterpiece in its own right, but it definitely – you feel the, the period that it was made and is somewhat limited by – Technology, the, right? The, the technology and just yeah. the mores of the – you know, I mean it's also an incredibly bleak film, but it – I think I actually I'm jealous of people like uh, of that gener- of William Friedkin's generation because when they remade movies like if, you know John Carpenter remaking um, the thing mm-hmm. when the original thing was an excellent Howard well Howard Hawks produced sort of directed movie um, he had the benefit of making a film went at a in a period uh, sorry John Carpenter had the benefit of make, remaking the film in a period where the entire culture of the world had changed not to mention the fact that he had color <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, it, his film is – I think the remakes in the, that period um, of films from the 50s or the 40s or the 30s really benefited from the fact that no matter what you did in the, in the 70s, it, it would invariably feel different because the culture was so radically different. You know, the way people looked and the way they spoke and um, what you were allowed to show on the screen was so radically different in the 70s and the, and the 80s that you couldn't help but – do something that was of that time and separate from the original. I think when people remake films now from the eighties and the seventies, it's tough because in fact, our culture hasn't changed that much. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, um, uh, technological differences, but in some ways I don't think our culture is that much more liberal or, you know, that we didn't have a, a, a second, um, sexual revolution or anything like that, that made what, you know, what you shoot now radically different from what would have been shot 
say, an equal amount of time before, you know, 20, 30 years before. Right. In other words, if we remade Sorcerer now, I think that director would have a hell of a time topping Friedkin because I just think the world's just, you know, from that perspective is not all that different. And um, but but well well Vincenzo. To be fair, if we remade Sorcerer, it would be a completely unnecessary remake that was a soulless cash grab, and therefore, right. uh, you know, any similarities or dissimilarities would be just you know unnecessary. Right. But even yes, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. But even in a hypothetical situation where somebody made a film with without those considerations, like was just trying to do a contemporary version of the sorcerer and just do the best version that they could do. I don't think, I think they have a hard time doing something that was that different or that, that, that much more impressive. Yeah, no, no, uh, for sure. I, I, I think so as well. Um, And, but the irony, sorry to go on and on, but the irony being that of course, William Friedkin was criticized heavily for remaking (laughs) wages of fear and, and couldn't escape the shadow of that film, even though what he did was actually exactly what I think a remake when you do them properly, should be a film very much of its time. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to, to make that little point. Yeah, that's good context. Um, I mean, from my perspective, watching this, I've n- never seen it before, and watching it for the first time, uh, I feel like uh, putting aside the prologues, the movie still holds up from a pacing perspective, and... Um, the set pieces are just incredible. And when, once you get on that journey, it is just set piece after set piece after set piece. Uh, and you really get a sense of, of place in the movie, right? Like they, it, you really mm-hmm. feel like they went out into the jungle and shot in these locations. Whereas like in today's world, they probably have shot it on some, you know, some jungle in California or something like that. It just looks like the characters are really in danger Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like the actors themselves are really in danger. Like they, like the, you had unpredictable, uh, unpredictable elements like weather, and the tension for some of these scenes, like the truck scene. There's several uh, set pieces that, where the tension is just unbearable. Every part of my body was clenched uh, during several of. <laughs> Please these do not pieces. elucidate which parts, Dave. And they are. It was just so unbearably tense. And like, I, it's one of those things where after the scene is over, you let out this huge sigh of relief. Um, it's amazing anytime a movie has the ability to do that to you. It reminded me a lot of like uh, young Spielberg as well. I, don't, I hope that's mm-hmm. not a slight against Friedkin, but Spielberg is really great with the tension, um, especially when you think about movies like Jaws, for example, and uh, just being able to construct a scene with close-ups and editing uh, that like ramp up the tension. You know, I'm thinking of the the tree scene. Let's just leave it at that. You know, it just struck me as completely masterful, and I was uh, on the edge of my seat, and I was thrilled, and just also really sad that <laughs> not more people know about this movie and have seen it, is really the, the overwhelming feeling I was left with, yeah. right? Um, so, a lot of amazing things about this film, and anything else you want to highlight, uh, Vincenzo, or Devendra? You go first, Devendra, I've been talking a lot. <laughs> Um, let me see here. There's so much to say. I feel what, like what do you think addressed... of the score by Tangerine Dream? I mean, uh, that's one element that I thought yeah. was a little that sh- like kind of dates the movie. I, I don't think I... it's a bad score. Oh, but... uh, yeah. I so I actually just uh, finished rewatching the Heat. Uh, sorry, the Thief Blu-ray uh, recently as well, which I believe also has a Tangerine Dream score. 
And uh, I, I don't know, I just uh, maybe because I'm getting a little older at this point, too, and I'm feeling nostalgic for like great 80s and 70s synth. But I, I really enjoyed it in this film. So I, 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 I may just have a weakness overall for good Tangerine Dream like synth right now. Um, but I, I actually love that score. Um, I, I think what's most apparent isn't with it, this sorry, movie, is, isn't yeah. it the first time that Tangerine Dream did a yes, score yes, for the film? Yes, yes, that's important. Yeah. To... And now, now we're at a point where uh, Grand Theft Auto Five, Tangerine Dream, uh, co-scored that game, and nobody <laughs> talked about it. Like I was just looking around, like their stuff on Spotify. I was like, oh my god, I didn't even realize. And I played Grand Theft Auto Five without even realizing this. So it's just funny how, like, how much even before Michael Mann, like. You know, uh, it was a part of Sorcerer. Um, I think we brought up a lot of things about this movie that I found astonishing, I guess. But the culture shock, the culture shock is just something we should probably spend a little more time talking about because it is like the difference between 70s movies and the blockbusters that came after. It is so different. It is. And I wonder if this is the film that marks that line, you know, between uh, where the gritty, super bleak. Uh, super serious, I guess, in uh, in-depth films where the set pieces aren't really about, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, a lots of action, lots of things moving the, the, fast. The set pieces are not mm-hmm. about dazzling people; yes, they're about exactly. breaking the characters down. This isn't right? Indiana Jones on a train or Star Wars, you know, or you know, attacking the Death Star or anything. This is people, a guy, the people trying to do their jobs in a really tense way, in a really very realistic way, too, because I can, you, you could argue, should they, <laughs> you know, it, it, this is a job they're doing just to get money to get the hell out of this hellhole they're in. Um, they could run away. They could do other things, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Them, look, it's a very realistic look at what a set piece could be. And I think that makes it more thrilling and makes it feel a little more realistic, too. And something I wish we'd see more in films these days. The only thing that I thought was kind of unrealistic, if I may put on my nitpicker uh-huh. hat, which I know people love. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I thought was a little bit unrealistic is that they thought that driving it with a truck would be <laughs> like more stable than flying it. Right. Uh, it just, yeah, I just don't know if even if that like still washes with me. Uh, uh, have you been in a helicopter before, though? No, I haven't. Well, I, I guess, I especially like I've been on recent, uh, you know, I, I guess vaguely modern helicopters. They they are not the smoothest things. Right. In the world. Actually, there was a scene. There was this helicopter shot. Now that yeah. I think of it, that was very shaky. Yeah, and I guess it was intentionally very shaky. Exactly, and, and they even had that scene where the helicopter guy was like, "Nobody's going to do this." Right, right, no, I, I remember yeah, that. Maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe they couldn't get a helicopter pilot. No, maybe like any, anyone could drive a truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that's true. <laughs> well, anyway, I find it funny how the film doesn't even really. So I kind of have a sense of why they need to move the dynamite over there to help with this, uh, to help with the oil fire. But the movie doesn't really spend much time on it, even though that right. is the entire crux of these sequences. Um, right, or that, or that you couldn't get dynamite from another source, there. right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like yeah. not like dynamite that wasn't you know compromised in right, some way, right. right? Like that was another thing that I thought was. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was interesting if I may nitpick. But this is the only are, dynamite we've got, guys. Yeah, this is the only dynamite we have. We can't buy any other ones. We can't fly it in from anywhere else. Anyway. Um, and let's move into spoilers, though. You were, Vincenzo, you were going to say something. Yeah, too, right? Vincenzo. Well, I was just going to say, well, I thought, you know, you were actually leading to a, an interesting point, which is that there is a sort of political, there is a political subtext to the whole mm-hmm. film, too, which is that there's this big American company that's behind this whole thing. 
you know, that's exploited yeah. this third world country. And, and you see it, there's a very, it's been a while since I've seen the film, but I recall there's like a really hardcore scene where you see these guys dealing with a problem in an oil well, and it's really dangerous work. And you basically see how an American corporation is going into this place and just stripping it. And, uh, and so this whole mission is kind of rotten to the core because mm-hmm. they're doing it for the big oil company. And probably the big oil company is sending these guys in trucks because they're too cheap to do it any other way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's true. There's absolutely nothing to root for in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's let's move into spoilers. I think there is a lot to talk about uh, in spoilers, actually. So um, I think we can say buy this Blu-ray or DVD. And if you don't want to buy it, at least watch the movie because you will see set pieces that you, you will probably never see anything like it again. In movies, as Vincenzo yeah. pointed out, and if you uh, have a chance to see it on a big screen near you, just do it. Yeah, if you can see it in the theater, it's it is worth it. It's it is uh, playing yet in a couple places at this point. Amazing film. Hey, folks, I'm just interrupting this review flashback to talk about our sponsor, Zbiotics. These days, I have to be pretty careful if I decide to have drinks at night. I don't want to go too hard because I typically have to get up and take care of the kids and bring them to school or, you know, just deal with general work stuff. But now I found Zbiotics, which really helps out in those situations. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Most recently, I used Zbiotics uh, while going out for a family dinner during vacation, and uh, it was really helpful because I still had to get up the next day and get everybody ready for the beach and to make sure the kids were all fed and everything. It was nice not to have any major issues from the previous night. This Halloween, pair your candy and cocktails with Zbiotics to avoid a spooky next morning. Go to zbiotics.com slash filmcast. That's Z-B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash filmcast to get 15% off your first order when you use filmcast at checkout. You can also sign up for a subscription using our code so you can stay prepared no matter the time or the occasion. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash filmcast and use code filmcast at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode. Let's move into spoilers for Sorcerer starting right now. I thought up an ending for my book. It makes no damn sense. Compels me, though. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. You can't handle the truth! Inconceivable! I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. The one thing I wanted to talk about in in spoilers was... uh, like <laughs> the one thing that kind of <laughs> I was so astonished, Vincenzo, when I saw this movie, uh, because we have just been through the bowels of hell with these characters, <laughs> right? Like these are not sympathetic characters. Oh, actually, you know, the other thing I would say that kind of struck me as a little bit weird was uh, N- Nilo or Nilo, whatever his character's name is, just mm-hmm. straight up murders a guy. Uh, yeah. To take his place, and they're just like, yeah, okay, fine. That that's you can get what you <laughs> the want. World we live in because you yeah. killed that guy. Like we'll let you take you know we'll take you on a journey with us. 
Um, we don't need to go through the same test as everyone else. It, it just was really <laughs> that that struck. Well, me you're as the little, next name on the list, so I guess you're okay. That struck me as a forced thing to get the four characters we saw in the prologue into yeah, the actual yeah. film. Um, but the the one thing that I thought was extraordinary was you you have a situation where you have these four characters. They're not sympathetic. They've all done terrible things. Uh, I love how plausible the movie makes it so that, like, the, the situation these characters are in, it makes it totally plausible that these characters would all sort of risk their lives to go on this journey. Like, they, they people who have once been at the top of the world, millionaires at nice restaurants and stuff, are now in a terrible situation where they're willing to risk their lives for, you know, 20,000 pesos or whatever, Right. And the movie makes that journey plausible. I love that. You've been through the bowels of hell of these characters. You've been through them on the horrific bridge scene where one of them almost got run over. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a tire pops. And within 10 seconds, the movie just offs two of the characters. Shit happens, just, man. Just 10 seconds. Just, all of a sudden, you're an hour and 40 minutes into the movie, and then boom, they're, they're dead. It is I, I, that that scene, by the way, has one of those tropes that we see a lot today too of the characters like reminiscing. Yeah, like, like a, oh, a, a my wife, everything's gonna memory. be great, you know. Yeah. Next thing you know, yeah, that's life. <laughs> and, and and so I so I mean, uh, it certainly fit in with what Friedkin intended with the title of the film, and he wanted sorcerer to be to represent like fate, like that's what uh, like evil fate. A sorcerer is fate, and like uh, any one of us can be killed at any second, and and fate can take you from the top of the world, and one day you're just driving a getaway car to the next minute you're you know rinsing your mouth out with dubious water in this like really gross slum, uh, and and I just thought that was really effective and shocking that that you would that he would make you invest into these characters only to just kill two of them off. Uh, <laughs> seemingly on a whim, right, to make his point about the whims of fate. Uh, I, I just thought I, it's rare that a movie will do that these days. In fact, I, I dare say it, but one movie that actually comes to mind, uh, and I'm going to spoil this movie, but I don't think anyone's going to care, is Ar- Michael Bay's Armageddon. <laughs> where oh, half, come on. Halfway through the movie, they just off characters. Now, let's not give away any, let's not spoil any movie that, like, people would actually <laughs> care about. I, I think but, a more fitting example more recently would probably be The Grey, which is another guys on a mission and, yeah. like, hor- horrifically bleak film. Right. But, yeah. and, and we will say, like, yeah, like, we're not going to say who, People but die characters die during the course of that movie, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's rare to see it in a movie. And it's, yeah. dare I say, refreshing when you do see it, right? Uh, I mean, what, what did you make of that? That death scene, Vincenzo. When you when you've seen you've seen the film multiple times, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, I, I had exactly the same reaction as you, which is for sure the intended reaction. No, it's great. I mean, it's it's so shocking, and we're currently so accustomed to seeing you know with studio films, very generic kind of product where you can predict everything that's going to happen. And so, uh, no, it's amazing. It's it's a magnificent masterstroke. I mean, honestly. Um, given the choice, if someone said, do you want to watch French Connection or do you want to watch Sorcerer? I would say Sorcerer. I just, I just huh. prefer it. I mean, I think French Connection is a great movie, but it, you know, that's, I guess, his most lauded film next to The Exorcist. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really think that the Sorcerer stands up to those two films as good or greater than them and uh, for all those reasons. 
Devendra, how about you? What was your reaction? It was definitely the same sort of like shock. You know, it's just it it feels like something like you can't do that. Really? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we've just seen them make it through like impossible odds, right? Yeah. And but so I guess like, it also <laughs> go ahead. That also set up the uh, the crazy final scene, which I'm sure we're going to talk about too. But it's also like, of course, yeah, sure, because nobody wins, really. You know, life is hell, and so are you know every you know so are other people, I guess. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because I think if if you took those elements out of it, if you made gave the film one or two characters that are mm-hmm. heroic, truly heroic, you know, good guys, and you gave it a happy ending, that film would be a hit. <laughs> it's only because it chooses not to do those things. It doesn't, yeah. you know. But that's yeah. the only difference. Let's I bring mean, up it... Armageddon again, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which did which did relatively well at the box office. It did pretty damn yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, another scene I wanted to bring up is also uh, the scene where they blow up the tree. I just mm-hmm. thought that scene was so genius, especially because for for most of the scene, like I personally had no idea what he was doing. Sure. Right. Just he's like, I can take care of this, and then he's setting up this elaborate rig, and you, as the audience, there's this like dramatic irony. No, not dramatic irony. It's the opposite of dramatic irony, right? Where like the characters know what's going on, but you don't, and so you're. Um, I didn't think the other guys knew really what was yeah, going on. They, they were just kind of going like they they, were they had like, no choice. Yeah. Um, Although it's funny the- how like after all this or after. That was before the big uh, bridge, right? Or was it after? No, that was after. That was after. It was after. Okay, but after all that, a tree in the road, that's right. really... That, that's, that's what was going to foil the whole up. plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, the story behind that and the making of the film is that the uh, special effects guy who was there, he couldn't blow up the tree. So <laughs> William Friedkin brought down this guy from, I don't know, the Bronx or somewhere who was actually an arsonist. Right. <laughs> and, he has and he some blew, really interesting friends, yeah. He has some very interesting friends. And and the guy blew it up in one take. Nice. Awesome. One yeah. of his uh, acquaintances also inspired the uh, church donation heist at the beginning of the right, movie, right. apparently. But it looks spectacular. I mean, it looks like they actually blew up a tree. Just like yeah. the oil well fire, by the way, looked concerningly like an actual oil well fire. Like... <laughs> I don't think they faked that with digital effects. It looked like they actually set up this huge fire. Uh-huh. Vincenzo, I assume the scene was this the last scene you were talking about when he collapses in front of the fire. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because I had both scenes in mind. I um, see. Now that you mentioned it, because there's that magnificent, and again, it's been actually been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember the shot of it's. I think it's like a handheld shot, right? We are following Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, and he just collapses. He's just carrying this box, right? <laughs> over like this almost it looks like another planet like some mm-hmm. kind of weird almost moon landscape but but actually what I, I was really thinking of was the very end which of course is you know that he's going to be killed yeah like the guy the <laughs> guys the guys going in and you're like ah oh, hell but but yeah, i like, just you know that shot of him collapsing in front of the fire is like one of the most like so beautiful in so mm-hmm. many ways and the the symbolism there of like man against nature right uh, and just man totally being defeated. I mean, kind of defeated, you know. <laughs> you, know the, you know what the ending of the, of the uh, original Wages of Fear is? Uh, uh, enlighten us. It's, it's also um, suitably bleak. It's kind of similar. I mean, you can see uh, the relationship. I think, I think the star of Wages of Fear is Yves Montan. Anyway, uh, great French actor. He's, he makes it. He makes the delivery. 
and he's driving home to see this beautiful woman he's left. And he's so happy, he accidentally drives over the side of a cliff. <laughs> and that's the end. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like the, the first one wasn't bleak. But that's very French. That's so <laughs> right. French, yeah. Right. So, yeah, so the ending um, of this movie, yeah, you know he's going to be killed. I mean... Or do you? You're right. Maybe he makes. Maybe he convinces. He talks his way out of it. I mean, my interpretation of that is like, think of how far this guy has come from mm-hmm. his original situation, right? Having flashback, like when when he was having flashbacks to like driving the car, you can just just think like, dude, in an instant, his life changed completely, and he he's traveled so far. He's gone to the edge of the earth to get away from his past, but he was unable to escape it. Um. And I was filled with a sense of uh, tragedy just watching that scene and seeing that he couldn't – like sometimes no matter what you do, you can't escape what you've done in the past. Um, and yeah, I mean what, what did you make of the ending, uh, Devendra? Again, not something I think we'd really see too often today. You know, it's just – it is one of those things because I feel like stories today, we need that redemption in a way. You know, we need some sort of win for our characters. And uh, yeah, I, I can't – I think the most memorable films we've seen recently, I can th- uh, mention The Grey again, are films that are unique for their ability to actually go all the way with this sort of idea and not giving you what you want all the time. And it feels so refreshing today, but I, you know, I've seen a lot of the 70s films as well. Like I remember going through a lot of this older stuff, and there's a sense that, you know, you didn't have to give everybody what they wanted, I guess. And audience sort of, audiences sort of accepted that. And it was shocking to see in this film. But, yeah, it made me sad that we don't, ha- we don't take those chances really anymore. Vincenzo, what do you think? Do we take those chances? And the studios take those chances? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie coming out, guys, where a character basically you know, announces their death at the beginning of the film. Like I, I can just, you know. It's it's just it's that's kind of the state we're in where everything has to be telegraphed now. You know, I had an interesting experience. Um, I was very lucky to work with a, a famous writer on a film. Unfortunately, it didn't get made. Um, but a writer named uh, Rudy Wolitzer, and Rudy wrote um, a film for Sam Peckinpah called Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Rudy said, in those days, when you went to the studio to pitch your script, you'd say, "I want to write a film about Billy the Kid." And they said, okay. <laughs> and that was it. Now, the way it works is, you know, it's a committee and there's endless dissection and it just goes over and around and around and around. And, you know, that's why things are, are watered down. And by the way, I don't mean to, you know, I, I think good movies are being made. I think good movies are being sure, made sure. in the studio system. But it's becoming, you know, it's just becoming increasingly difficult. And in the bandwidth of what's considered acceptable is becoming increasingly limited. And, uh, you know, it's, it's um, worth pointing out that the writer of The Sorcerer is the guy who wrote The Wild Bunch for Sam Peckinpah. And that, has, that doesn't exactly have a feel-good ending. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Although that ending is cathartic, you know, in the way Sorcerer isn't really cathartic. It's right. Just, it doesn't give you anything. It's a, it's a cliffhanger, yeah. right? Yeah. It ends with a cliffhanger. So yeah, exactly. But a dread, like one that you can. It mostly leaves you with dread, I guess. Not like yeah. a cliffhanger where there's potentially, potentially a good outcome. Although, I don't know. 
You, maybe you he fought argue, his way out of there. Maybe like he what? fought his way out. I don't know. Or at least maybe he had. He was able to kill them all, even though he was dying at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> but it's funny, you know. But those were big, like uh, Wild Bunch. I don't know how well. I think Wild Bunch was reasonably successful. Mm-hmm. But a movie like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, that was a major hit. And I don't know when that film was made. Nineteen seventy one, or I, I don't know, or seventy four. I can't remember. But a uh, major hit, right? That nineteen sixty nine. Oh, was it? Oh, Jesus. Okay, 1969. <laughs> anyway, same year after Wild Bunch. That film ends with Robert Redford and Paul Newman leaping out of a, into like the jaws of death and being killed. You know, it ends with the two heroes being shot by an army. <laughs> so, and that was like a major, major hit. That was a feel, that was considered, that was like a feel good movie. <laughs> that was a feel good movie in those days. That's what people, you know, took their dates to. So it's just, it was just uh, the world has has changed radically. The world and has I guess changed. The, it, what's happening now, is now all, we're that's, seeing that's movies like Splice in theaters. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happened. Believe me, that was that won't happen again. But, uh, <laughs> but but now it's all on TV. That's why. Right. Right. So you know, you can do that on television. There you go. There you go. Movies are for Captain America, and uh, TV yeah. is for Hannibal. Smart, smart people. Yeah. All right. Actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I, th- I you know, I, I don't mean to be so cynical. If I had a hundred million dollars or more, double that, that I was, risking, <laughs> I would not end it with the two heroes being shot. <laughs> Spoiler I, for Vincenzo's <laughs> next movie. I so I don't, you know, I wouldn't hold it. The problem is it, the problem we are, you know, the situation we have is just that it's as I'm sure everyone says, it's just um, it's economic. You just can't you can't you can't release a film wide without it being a huge risk right you need to appeal to the maximum number of people possible basically. you have to because even if the film costs 30 bucks it costs 30 million to market it right so and then you're risking 60 because you know you have to make double and then the dvd market's de- you know more or less dead so you don't have that kind of um safety net right so we're so not to like you know, be on the bad guy's side or anything. You're, but you're ending on a down note, just like Sorcerer did. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm, I'm but in a weird way I'm sympathetic towards the studios because I think that you know they're in a kind of bind, and it's it's. It, on the other hand, I think they're stupid in the way they spend money. I mean, I honestly don't believe anything should cost two hundred million dollars. Possibly nothing should cost a hundred either. They just spend money really badly. <clears throat> but um, anyway, but yes, we should all exalt. <laughs> we should we should really. Praise Sorcerer to the hilt to get people to watch it because they're guaranteed to see something that they're not going to see in a contemporary film, right? Uh, a- ever on, again, probably on, on that scale. It's just yeah. not. It can't happen. Yeah, just anymore. not not done anymore. Yeah. Well, um, you know, guys, I, I think any system that can allow what a movie like Transcendence, right, to have a one hundred million dollar budget or above <laughs> that is is totally fine. There's nothing going. We don't have to worry. We're totally <laughs> I, haven't, cool. I haven't seen Transcendence. Oh God, I I would love to hear what you think of that movie. All right. Well, anyway, let's <laughs> let's move past it, Devendra. Let's move. No, I cannot. That's going to bring us to the end of our review, I think. Um, but yeah, Sorcerer, get it on Blu-ray. It's an awesome film. Uh, end of an era that movie represents, and uh, pretty much. Oh, and, can, can, I, can I end this on a personal note? By the Please. way, before we the last kind of, before we leave, Sorcerer. Yeah. Um, again, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Friedkin, and I was so I was terrified because he has this <laughs> reputation of like you know when he was making The Exorcist of carrying a gun around and 
<laughs> being really abusive to the actors and so on. He was the sweetest man you could ever imagine meeting. He was so kind and generous. Now, maybe this is in his older age, but he was, I just want to point out that he was like a really lovely person. And then, of course, an amazing raconteur and an incredibly brilliant guy. So um, I just want to give a little personal testimony. Nice. Not only a great director, but a really, really amazing He's probably been humbled a bit over the past few years, I think. So that probably helped. Right? I mean, I think he was humbled as a result of this movie. So. This movie, uh, many, oh, Sorry, that's my. That's my. Um, this movie, many of his other recent films. Yeah, too. I mean, one of the one of the uh, first movies I saw by William Friedkin uh, after The Exorcist was actually Rules of Engagement. Yeah. in two thousand, which was not a great, not, film. A, not a good yeah. movie. So The Hunted, which no, no. Yeah. Anyway, uh, one reason I love Killer Joe, even though that is a really messy and sloppy kind of film, it does show that Freakin still has it. So if you haven't seen Killer Joe yet, you check that out. And and Bug. Yes. That looks so good. This movie looks like it was made by a 25 year old. (laughs) Dude is 79. I think he's 79 years old, 78, 79 years old. So uh, I hope he will be with us for many more years to come. Sorcerer is a masterpiece and should be enjoyed by as many people as possible. Um, so, Vincenzo, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week or anywhere? Uh, well, you know, I did this uh, TV series in Canada called Darknet, and the first episode, which I wrote and directed, is online. You can go to darknetfiles.com, and uh, I believe in the near future it will be available uh, in the States, um, but I, I can't say where or when just yet, but I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Um, and it's a six-part horror anthology series. And uh, so, yeah, there's that. And then I have a Hemlock Grove I directed that'll be uh, coming out whenever they have the second season. I did the second episode. And then there's a Hannibal coming up in a week, I think. <clears throat> nice. Is that, that's not the finale, is it? No, it's not. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, I have seen the finale, though. Oh, <laughs> all right uh devendra hardwar yeah you can find me on twitter at twitter.com slash devendra and everything else i do at devendra.org find me at davechen.net find my video work on youtube.com slash davechensky that's davechensky and on twitter at davechensky davechensky um stay tuned for our review next week of the amazing spider-man 2 and also we'll be probably having at least one Brief video essay with Vincenzo Natale going up at SlashFilm.com this week about his Hannibal episode, so stay tuned for that. Thanks so much, Vincenzo, for joining us. Always an educational experience. And uh, best of luck in your exciting upcoming projects. Thank you, David. Thank you, Devinder. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Film cast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. All right, we're back. So, Devinder Hardwar, this is one of my favorite reviews that we've ever done. Yeah, it was great. And it, it, it's an earlier phase of the film cast. Obviously, this is before Jeff Kanata had joined, after Adam Quigley was a, a co-host. And mm-hmm. in the early days of the podcast, um, it was really very unusual 
I would say, to be doing podcasts. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was not a thing where everyone and their mom had a podcast. It yeah, was e- even in 2014, it was still kind of unusual. Exactly. And and yeah. one of the great things that we did on the podcast early on was we got filmmakers on to talk mm-hmm. about other works, right? Uh, to uh, to talk about what other filmmakers had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could still do a sorcerer review with a filmmaker today, but it's very difficult to have a director on the podcast to review another film that's out in theaters right now or whatever, because I think directors very reasonably, uh, you know, considered a professional courtesy to not criticize other directors. But back mm-hmm, then it's mm-hmm. like, no one's even listening to this thing. Like you need an iPod with an iTunes and you need to sync it to even hear it. It was, no, I mean, 2014 by then there are other, yeah, okay. players there. there were other ways to listen to podcasts, but it was still, it was, it was still, still unusual. Conan O'Brien had not invented podcasting That's by right. that point, right. you know, That's and right. I feel like his show and a lot of the comedy shows really were the, were the catalyst for a wider audience. We were yeah. still in the, in the weeds, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, uh, as time has gone on, you know, we, we've still mm-hmm. been able to get filmmakers to appear on the podcast and so on, but like it used to be, we would get them on to review other movies. And that that's basically just, I, I no longer ask for that in general. Yeah. I think people don't want to do it because you know, it's just a, a courtesy not to, but it, it, there, it, there was it, also like a lot less content getting made at that point. Right. Yeah, so yeah. the directors were around and, uh, not many people were talking to them, you know, aside from mainstream like outlets, you know, so to be like, hey, you want to come on this weird radio thing and just right. like talk about why you love this thing? That was unique. Now everybody's doing their like, you know, tell me 10 funny things about right. you making this movie on now YouTube you can now, you know, yeah. GQ can do a video with you and make like, you yeah. know, three million views on that. And it's like, but yeah, you're right. There were fewer outlets available to, to filmmakers. So anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think, you know, uh, I, just to be clear, I think Vincenzo and I continue to have a very cordial relationship to this day. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of him. Obviously, I think I think you like the peripheral on, on Amazon Prime Video. If I'm I did. Mistaken, I watched right? some yeah. of that. I have not finished yeah. that, but I, I love him as an artist, too. And just like going back and listening to this conversation was just a great reminder of like, man, we just need more great like indie film energy like Vincenzo out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What, a th- what a thoughtful guy. So, uh, Devendra, you talked about the audio quality. It was very uh-huh. wor- like very bad compared to what it is today. I, think, I definitely listened you, to this one at a lower volume. It was like, I don't. Mm, okay. Do you remember what you were using as a microphone at the time? Do I was probably what? using, yeah, a Shure PG42 USB microphone, which is a really good microphone. But I was not in a treated room, and that was a condenser mic. So it just it, it captures everything, and it doesn't it loses a lot of low end sometimes. So yeah. since I moved over more to like a radio friendly type dynamic microphone, and I have a whole like you know audio interface setup now, like it's it's certainly a lot better, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I was using a like perhaps a Sure SM58, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, uh, the little handheld one. Yeah, the little like, handheld. Yeah. I think that's what I was using on a sound blaster. And I think like connected to a sound <laughs> yes. blaster. And I'm you pretty sure loop. I was recording Davindra and Vincenzo through a Skype call. That's kind yes. of what I think I yes. was recording, right? Uh, and we are now using Zencaster and other programs that allow you to record at a higher quality. I'm using a Shure SM58, uh, uh, which is the same micro. Or, sorry, I just said I, uh, the um, the other one. The, 7B. Uh, 7B, right. That's the yeah. one that Joe Rogan uses. It's the one that's kind of like a, a industry standard now. So hopefully we sound a little bit mm-hmm. better today than we did back then. I, I also, I think, I also mm-hmm. had a massive cyst 
uh, in my skull. And that was <laughs> it, like my voice sounds different back then. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, even, I, I feel like my voice even sounds different, but I don't know if that was just the microphone or not. But you know what? The big quality leap for us was moving over to stuff like Zencaster, where you were capturing the audio that, that I am actually recording from my computer. And it's going to you rather than being de- you know compressed by Skype. And then you record the compressed version. And it sounds weird. So, I yeah, my, my quality probably suffers from Skype stuff, too. Yeah. yeah. The one thing that I feel like uh, I, I take away from that conversation is even at the time that we had this conversation about Sorcerer, mm-hmm. I was already kind of wistful about like, oh, remember when they used to be able to make movies like Sorcerer? Well, whatever feelings I had at this time, <laughs> multiply them by like three X for yeah. where, where I am today, because I think uh, especially this summer where. Uh, there have been multiple superhero failures, but the, even the big successes like Barbie, the, Oppenheimer being the exception, but even mm-hmm. the big successes like Barbie and The Little Mermaid uh, are based off of pre-existing IP, right? Now, to be fair, Sorcerer was also based off of pre-existing IP. It was a yeah, theoretically a remake of Wages yep. of Fear, but like, uh, but still, like it felt, it feels watching it again today feels so bold and original mm-hmm. compared to. 99% of what we see in theaters right now. Do you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you feel that. Am I, am I too no, down? I, on I definitely feel that way. Like, yeah. um, I do feel like, yeah, since then, since 2014, we have leaned more on superhero movies, more on IP driven movies. Um, and yeah, back then I thought something like Sorcerer, the miracle, it came through the Hollywood system. Now it seems like even more of a miracle is the way I'd say it. And I also referenced, um, the movie, the gray several times, Joe Carnahan's the gray. Yes. This is a movie I need to go back and watch now because it actually feels thematically similar, but that also felt like, man, this is a very weird movie, but I'm so glad it was made because it felt like it was made for me. And just those experiences. I feel like we just don't get that often anymore, but at the same time, like hell they, they gave Christopher Nolan how much money to make Oppenheimer. Right. And that's just a real big, weird original thing. And, and it did well, you know, so it did it's, well. It's, it's hope. Yeah. It's hope for the future of movies, Oppenheimer and, and, you know, to, to some degree also Barbie, mm-hmm. obviously, but you know, Barbie's based off of a toy line. Uh, but yeah, it's hope for original bold filmmaking mm-hmm. in the world. And also, like, we we have more streaming media now than we ever did back then. Like, I think back then there just weren't really that many streaming shows on Netflix and stuff. Right. um, Or at least original content produced by them. So, yeah, it's a very... I, yeah, the talent is just more spread out. Like Vincenzo is working on all sorts of different things right now, like Amazon's The Peripheral. And... Yeah, I would love for him to get his own movies out there. But at the same time, that's a really cool project. I'm glad it has like his vision, too. So, you know, the talent is just in different places now. It's just not always in theaters, which is a shame. On that note, rewatching Sorcerer recently, the thing that... The, it's just such a bold way to open a film, which is in Sorcerer, you are introduced to the four main characters via these kind of four vignettes, these four kind of short films with zero context whatsoever. It's like we're we're in Tel Aviv and we're in New York and we're in France. And it just you're bouncing from place to place. Very elaborate setups, like multiple mm-hmm. scenes with sometimes dozens, if not hundreds, of extras. Yeah. Um, just to introduce you to these people who you don't even know like what's gonna happen to like why are these people even important? And it takes it takes so long, the movie takes so long to even get to that point. Uh but I admired it so much for that. You know, I admired basically saying, hey, I'm going to show you a bunch of unconnected scenes and you're just going to have to stick with me. You're just mm-hmm. going to stick with me. You know what I mean? 
that actually kind of felt like watching Oppenheimer, to be honest, too. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, like, hey, yes, we're yes. just running through different scenes and so quick and you just got to keep up, you know, and I do right. respect it about that movie, even though I didn't enjoy that movie as much as I enjoyed something like Sorcerer. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Still, I still need to rewatch. It's a great comparison. It's a great comparison, yeah. though, because you're a movie like Oppenheimer just yeah. drops you right into it. You know, men on a mission. Same deal, too. Like, it's very much like uh, so many things. So big things are at stake here. And I think they both end on pretty sour notes, which is a rare thing to see these days. The other thing that struck me listening to this review and rewatching Sorcerer again was just how lucky we are that Sorcerer didn't kill William Friedkin's career. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or, or like, other people. Like, yeah, or, 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 yeah. or actual humans, right? I yes. mean, rewatching the movie, it's you, you realize, oh, wow, people probably endanger their lives to make this. Mm-hmm. But... Um, we have had filmmakers uh, get, go to director jail for crimes far less than making a great film that didn't do well at the box office. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is Martin Brest. You yes. remember Martin Brest? Director right? Geely? Yeah. The, the, the guy made Midnight Run, Scent of a Woman, Beverly Hills Cop. Then he made Geely and basically has never been heard from since, right? Uh, now, he was recently profiled, I, I believe, in the New York Times mm-hmm. uh, and worth checking out. But it's just like, you know, reading about William Friedkin, he he basically like bet his career on Sorcerer, which did not do that well. Uh, and I'm just grateful that he, this is a guy who continued to work uh, basically until the very end. Right? He continued to work, but on much much smaller projects. So to be clear, like his like he didn't have the same pull as he did like when he could demand all these things for that, Sorcerer. I mean, that's true. But like some of his later movies were still mm-hmm. pretty ambitious. You know, like yeah. Um, what, what did he make after Sorcerer? He made. To live and die in L.A., right? Yeah. He made uh, another like very like I, I I've started watching that another very complicated movie. You know, not mm. not exactly a crowd pleaser. I'd say. Uh, agreed, agreed. But you know, he made uh, Rules of Engagement. He made The Hunted. I mean, so these are like pretty big movies in my opinion. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, point point being, Sorcerer widely regarded as a disappointment at the time, and and essentially vanished from popular consciousness mm-hmm. because it was not easily available. Uh, you know, uh. William Friedkin still had a very respectable career afterwards. And I'm very grateful for that because we've seen a lot of times that hasn't happened in modern day. So mm-hmm. anyway, those are a few of my observations, Devinder Hardwar, but I'm curious, like yeah. any other thoughts you had, like listening to this, I, I had a great time listening to this and I-, I listened to this conversation with very fond memories of us watching this movie, talking about it together in what would become the early days of the film cast, you know? Yeah. Similar. I mean, yeah, yeah. It feels like simpler times, but it was great to remind ourselves like, Hey, yeah, we, we should just sit and chat about entire movies with Vincenzo Natale. And that was a great <laughs> thing. I was trying to like place myself, which apartment I was in and what my yeah. setup was for this. And that was probably one of my first, probably my first New York apartment. So just fond memories of rewatching this and preparing for this thing. Do want to say once again, like we've talked about like movies we should all watch. I feel like we should just do some discussions about um Friedkin movies at some point, but Bug is a movie I have mm. been itching to rewatch, and that would be a really good discussion at some point. Uh yeah, yeah I, I've been really going through a lot of Friedkin's again. I rewatched You would I, love the hunted. I, like I the hunted watched is the Living right Dial in LA. I mm-hmm. watched I rewatched Sorcerer recently, but yeah, um uh, the hunted is on my list to watch at some point. Bug is on my list. So don't be surprised if those show up in the what we've been watching at some yep. point soon. But um yeah, uh, so I think that's it. Again, this is something new we haven't really tried before is uh, going back and, and reflecting back on one of these conversations. But let us know what you think of it 
at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. We'd be really interested to yeah. hear. I know uh, people are keep asking for earlier episodes and stuff. And it's just, it's tough because yeah, they often don't sound good. You know, or may not be the things we want out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So uh, we hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Next week, it's going to be a special episode. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the Summer Movie Wager Results episode next week. Oh, man. uh, Look forward to that and the humiliation of all of us. Uh, But (laughs) anyway, big big shout-out to Vincenzo Natale for joining us for this conversation. Thanks to you, Devendra, for having it with me nine years ago and for chatting with me today. And again, find more episodes at slash filmcast. Uh, I'm sorry, thefilmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. And if you want to support this podcast and what we do, patreon.com slash filmpodcast, where you can sign up for ad free episodes and exclusive after arcs. All right. I think that is going to bring us to the end of today's episode. Uh, Devendra, it's been fun looking back with you. So much uh, fun. Thanks, folks, for listening. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.